Starting at the age of 14, maybe earlier, I was, like many teenagers, obsessed with driving. I desperately wanted the freedom that comes with having a driver's license and a car to drive. To this day, I remember the exhilaration of driving by myself for the first time in my mom's very sweet 1997 white Dodge Caravan, right, a minivan. I had it sparkling clean, as clean as it could get. I had the windows down and I had the music up very loud. I'd spent months thinking about that first moment uh, and I had debated what song and what CD would have been appropriate for such an occasion as that. So I spent a lot of time picking that out and I can remember it really clearly. But there was a rule in my house. I grew up uh, the oldest of four. I have three younger sisters. And my parents, my mom and dad, though they were unified on rules for, for us as kids, we generally had an idea of which rules initiated where. My mom was very concerned about safety-related issues, and my father was very concerned about maintaining the vehicles that we drove. He, of course, cared that we were safe, too. But we had a rule that if you were going to drive with a driver's license and if you were going to have a car, my dad's rule was you had to learn how to change the oil, right? I'm not going to ask how many people know how to change the oil in the car. Uh, but so my mom was worried about safety. I was worried about music. My dad was worried about, you know, the longevity of the car. He would stress to us over and over again the importance of, of checking the oil and explain to us the dangers of running a car out of oil, right? And so much so, it was so important to him that his rule was you could not drive if you could not change the oil. So when I was 13 or 14 or 15, I, I learned how to change the oil. And I was talking about this with my dad recently because the rule disappeared once I went through. None of my sisters learned how to change the oil. Um, but they learned how to check the oil, and they learned how to take the oil to get changed, right? Um, but it was, it was important to my dad, and it, I'm thankful for it because it's taught me something about caring for cars, but, but it emphasizes the importance of keeping oil in an engine to keep it running smoothly. You know, engines are not like, if you run an engine out of oil, it's not like running the car out of gas or out of windshield wiper fluid, right? It's very, it's very different. You see, engines naturally have this tremendous amount of friction from all the moving parts and all the heat that is being generated, and that friction produces a lot of heat in an engine. And so, of course, motor oil and grease and, and lubricants are, are absolutely essential for keeping an engine running. If you were to run your car out of oil, thanks to YouTube, I can go and see what this is like. If you were to run your car out of oil, your engine would very quickly, quite literally, lock up on you and produce a very significant, probably irreparable amount of damage. You see, in the mechanical world, every machine that has complex moving moving parts requires some sort of oil lubrication in order to keep running smoothly. Well, the same thing is true in our human relationships. Human relationships are incredibly complex, more so even than complex engines. And because of sin, because of problems, they actually produce a lot of friction, a lot of heat. And so they need oil to run smoothly. And that oil, I think, is the oil of forgiveness. The oil of forgiveness. 
If you read the Bible carefully, you will notice that Jesus and all of the biblical authors are incredibly interested in human relationships. There's a great, significant importance and emphasis on the importance of human relationships, particularly within the body of Christ. God is incredibly concerned and even jealous for peace and unity in his church. This is why in every single one of Paul's letters, you will read instructions to the church, things like, be, uh, be of the same mind, or have brotherly love, or bind everything together in perfect harmony, or to live in peace with one another. And the only way for that to happen is that since sinners sin, and that produces a lot of friction in our relationships, is we need the oil of forgiveness to keep things running smoothly. This is true for all of your relationships. Whether it's your most intimate relationships, like your spouse or your closest friend, or, or perhaps a parent-child relationship, or whether it's some of those people on your list of 20 or 30 that we, that we made mentally last week. All of our relationships need the oil of forgiveness to keep working. And that's because sin produces friction. And that, that causes damage and tension and pain inside of our relationships. And I'm sure you've found this to be true as I have, that, that the closer you get to people, the harder those relationships tend to be. The more moving parts and the more interaction and often the more friction there is. So we must regularly apply liberal doses of the oil of forgiveness to our relationships. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week, we laid the foundation for this. We, we began to discuss how the gospel sets the foundation for relational success. The gospel lays and sets us up for relational success. The gospel actually gives our relationships staying power. It helps us know how to get lots of miles out of our relationships. We can endure difficulties. We can suffer wrongs all because of the gospel. When we recognize how God has treated us in Christ, all of a sudden we are empowered to love difficult people. I know that you have difficult people in your life, so I know that this is helpful and, and relevant to consider this. So we saw last week that, that this is not just good relationship advice, right? I don't know how well this would fit on the morning talk shows uh, and, and talking about the next relationship tip. It's more than just good relationship advice. This is actually God's command for his people. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, last week we read this overwhelming command. Look down at this text with me. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, if you pause and if you give even a few moments of reflection to this short sentence, you should find this to be a very overwhelming command. How in the world could we ever forgive like God forgives? I mean, how can we be kind to one another and tenderhearted? Have you met some of the people out there, right? Somebody told me this week, I don't remember, they said, God must really love idiots because he made a lot of them, right? You laugh, but somebody thinks you're an idiot, right? Yeah? 
How are we to be kind and tenderhearted to one another when sin causes so much friction in our relationships? But then we realized last week that this is more than just a command. Because within this command, as all of God's commands are, we actually find we don't just have some burden, some law dumped on us, but we actually have the power given to us to obey it. Here's, here's what I mean. We can see that God is actually providing for us what He commands. Because not only does this command contain a radical call for forgiveness, but it also contains the secret to that forgiveness. The secret to offering that forgiveness. That is, as we saw last week, by considering God. By considering how God in Christ has forgiven us. So the way this works is we need to do a little experiment, right? Let's say you have a relationship. You can decide if you are the red guy or the blue guy, whatever, and these are gender neutral. <laughs> Get in trouble, right? So you can decide who, 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 you, who you are in this, but let's say you've got a relationship, and somewhere along the way, perhaps this week, I'm certain of it, right? Because I know people, right? This week, there was some sort of sin that that person committed against you. Big sin, maybe. Small sin, definitely. Medium sin, any, anywhere in between. Repeat sins, habitual sins, weird sins, massive sins, whatever it is. Doesn't matter. You pick. But you're left reeling and in the hurt and the pain that was caused by that sin. Sin always causes problems. Always. No exceptions. So when we sin, that chaos comes into our relationships because of that sin. And so you're left trying to figure out what to do next. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for your relationship? What does this mean for the vacation that you were going to take together? Or the fact that you actually have to eat dinner together or share a bedroom together or take this child to school or sit by this coworker at work? What does it mean for your relationship going forward. How are you going to treat this person now? How are you going to move on? Well, I think that we often have a sense of how much it would take to kind of absorb the pain of the sin, right? What I mean by that is the emotional damage that is, is caused by the sin, but to, to, to just get over it, right? We have an idea of what that might feel like. It might feel impossible, but we have an idea that it's there. But let's say that you were to think, and this is what we talked about last week, how much forgiveness do I need to muster up to get over this? How much forgiveness does this situation need? And once you get some sort of idea of what the need for forgiveness before you is like, here's what you do. You stop and you compare their need for forgiveness to your need for forgiveness. In other words, you think, how many times has God forgiven you? How many ways has God forgiven you? How much forgiveness and mercy and grace was required by God to bring reconciliation between you and Him? How much has He granted you in order to be reconciled to Him from your sin? And you see, even if you have just a basic basic understanding of God's law. Let's say all you know is one of the Ten Commandments. Even if that's all that you understand, 
you realize that your rap sheet probably looks something like this. Those are all little crosses. Let's just say this is my rap sheet for this week, right? Lots and lots of sin means I need lots and lots of grace. So you're comparing. And what happens is that as you begin to realize that you have been forgiven, not a couple times, but thousands of times for not just small sins, but big sins. Because when we sin, we commit anarchy against the God of the universe. This is much bigger than a harsh word to a child. Our sin is a big deal. And so what happens is that when you realize that you've been forgiven thousands of times at immeasurable expense to God, you realize that you have, you'll never be called to forgive someone more than God has forgiven you. And so as your heart begins to swell with gratitude towards Christ, the God who bridged the gap between you and God, what you'll find is this. A new power is growing in your heart. And Ephesians 4.32, power. To forgive any type of sin, no matter how heinous, to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you see how this works? Do you see how the gospel sets the stage for how we're to respond to all the sin in our relationships? What I'd like to do this morning is take the rest of our time together and try to understand this dynamic a little bit more fully and how this works as the oil in our relationships. As we know, the world and our flesh gives us all sorts of different types of options for how we respond when people sin against us. You, you can read about it on Facebook. You can hear about it on TV. You can read books about how the world says you're supposed to respond when your wife sins against you or when your child sins against you or when your coworker sins against you. But the Bible only gives us a few options. So the question is this, what do we do when the friction of sin starts to produce heat in our relationships? What do you do when the, when the friction of sin produces heat in our relationships? Well, the gospel teaches, the Bible teaches that the first thing that we are to do is to deal with our own sin first. We always start by dealing with our own sin. You may have noticed, but the gospel is incredibly personal. It demands that we start by looking at how we have failed. That's, why, that's how the law works. God confronts us with the guilt of our own personal sin, and so we're called to deal with the problem of our sin first. And the same thing is true in our human relationships. You remember how Jesus told the disciples that, that we are actually hypocrites whenever we attempt to take a speck out of our neighbor's eye when we've got this log coming out of our eye. We're like flinging around trying to get specks out of people's eye, doing all sorts of damage because we're oblivious to the sin in our own life. So whenever we find sin in our relationships, there's one way to respond, right? We start by looking at our own sin and we go and be reconciled. There's a key text for us here in, if I can get there, Whoops. In Matthew chapter 5, it's a key text for us. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, 
and there you remember that your brother has something against you. What should you do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay, think about this text for just a moment. Do you see how this text highlights how big of a deal unresolved sin is in your relationships? I mean, you know that it causes problems, but this is not just relational problems. This is a worship problem. Folks, do you realize that this text says that being resolved or being reconciled to a, uh, someone you've sinned against is more important than formal worship? That means that if there is sin in your relationships that you have not addressed, then your worship here today, it's hypocritical, right? Unconfessed sin in our relationships will always hinder our relationship with God. Unconfessed sin will always be a hindrance to worship. Yes, in the gospel, God has covered our sins, praise God. He has reconciled us to him. But the natural outworking of that is that if we understand that gospel is to go and to confess our sins to the ones that we've sinned against. Think, I mean, think about it. We, the, we must not only confess our sins to God and be made right with God, but we must also confess our sin to our brother whom we've sinned against and be made right with him. In the same way that we are called to confess to God, God, I have sinned and I need you. We're to confess that same thing to other people. I have sinned and I need God. That's what we do when we're making things right. We're called to confess our need of God to other people and acknowledge the sin that we commit. That's what we do when we seek forgiveness. Now I want to stop here and make a clarification. I'm not just talking about apologizing, okay? This text is not simply talking about offering an apology. The word here is reconciliation, right? Be reconciled. This is more than just apologizing. Apologizing is not the same thing as seeking forgiveness. This is what I sometimes call false forgiveness. Here's kind of, here's how it works, right? We get hung up here all the time. Because the way that we ask for forgiveness is critical. Let's say, for example, that I accidentally spilled a cup of scalding hot coffee on you, right? This is significantly possible because I normally have a cup of scalding hot coffee on my person, right? So if you're near me, you might get coffee spilled on you. If I do that accidentally, I don't need to ask for your forgiveness, right? I, I, need, to, I need to acknowledge that, that it's a problem, but I haven't sinned against you. It was an accident. But I should apologize to you out of concern for your well-being, right? However, on the other hand, if I threw a cup of hot coffee in your face, which I would never do unless it's bad coffee, okay? Just don't worry. If I was to throw a cup of hot coffee in your face, that's a different story. Not only do I need to apologize to you, I need to seek your forgiveness because I've sinned. I must apologize and then ask you to forgive me. An apology is not the same thing as, as asking for forgiveness. An apology is often a very vague sort of concern that there's a problem. Right? It's often very impersonal, not always, but it's generally just concern that something unpleasant has happened to you. Right? I'm sorry that you feel that way. Right? <laughs> um, 
It's different. It doesn't go the distance that Jesus is talking about to be reconciled. Instead, when we ask forgiveness, what we should do is we should name the specific sin that we've committed and then explicitly ask for forgiveness. A good apology has that. You confess the specific sin, you acknowledge the hurt that you've caused, and then you seek explicitly ask for forgiveness. Think about it. If I was to say something like this, I'm sorry for yelling at you. What, what normally happens after that? Well, the person that I'm apologizing to would probably say something like this. That's okay. You see what just happened? First of all, I didn't admit my sin. I gave this vague kind of apology. Secondly, the offended person just lied and minimized the sin that I committed. It's not okay to yell at someone. It's not, that's not okay to do. This is what I call sin sweeping, right? Sweeping it under the rug. This is often, this is like what my daughters sometimes do at dinner when uh, they have vegetables to eat and they just kind of move the vegetables around on the plate. Anybody done that? Any husbands do that, right? Just kind of move it around, right? You're not really solving the problem. You are just moving the sin around. Very little reconciliation has taken place. Instead, I should say something like this. I was really selfish and unkind. I failed to show self-control. Will you please forgive me? Do you see how different that is? So we, when we sin, when we have sin in our relationship, the first thing we do is stop and examine ourselves and then deal with our own sin first. I've noticed just personally in my life that I cannot, I cannot think of a single example that someone has sinned against me and I did not in some way sin in response. Sinners tend to sin in response to sin. So start by looking at yourself. We already know that we've been exposed by the cross as sinners, right? It's public. If you've been baptized, you've stood up and said, I'm a sinner. I got problems. I need a savior. And so when we sin against other people, it's not that far of a leap to get that sin out in the open and to make it right and to trust in Jesus for paying for our sin. So that's what we do. This is real simple, a simple way to do it. When we, when we sin, we deal with our own sin first. But what about when they sin, right? I know that in this room, there are literally hundreds of thousands of offenses that have been committed against you. People have sinned against you in all sorts of ways. Big, small, everything in between. Some of you have endured the same sin 30 times a day for 30 years by the same person. How do we deal with that? How do we respond in these types of situations? This friction that sin produces is real. So what do we do? Well, biblically, when the Bible teaches us about responding to sin, there's really only two options. There's really only two options at our disposal. The first option is to confront. Okay? To confront. God does not call us to turn a blind eye to sin. We can't just ignore it. That's another form of just sweeping it under the rug. In fact, he calls us to do quite the opposite. God doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't pretend like it isn't there or that it doesn't do damage. And neither should we. 
Jesus had a tremendous amount to say about how we are supposed to deal with broken relationships. And so often, he's teaching us that we should have an active approach. We should have an active approach to dealing with the offenses that other people have committed towards us and our relationships. In Matthew chapter 18, I would encourage you to turn there because we'll spend a little bit of time there at a high level. Um, But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus outlines the basic steps for how we should address the sins that other people commit against us, especially when they're not repentant. Look at Matthew 18. Let's just read verse 15. This is something of a summary of this chapter. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That doesn't sound fun. (laughs) Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, we don't have time to work all the way through this passage this morning, but I want to try to follow really just the high points of Matthew chapter 18 as he outlines them in this chapter. And what they'll do is they'll help us as we think about how is it that we can talk to other people about their sin. The first thing is we must recognize that we are to begin and continue and end with humility. Verses 1 through 5 uh, explain to us that if, that if we're a people who understand the gospel, we're going to be a people who understand that we have been forgiven much. So we're going to have humble attitudes, right? We will be the least. We will be like children in the faith. If we are people who understand the gospel and how much we have been forgiven, if you understand how massive your cross is, think about the cross chart. If you realize how massive your cross is, then you're not going to approach other sinners with arrogance and condescension, but with humility. We don't want to shame people for their sin, no matter how big their sin is. But instead, we want to approach them with humility. From our perspective, no matter what their sin is, our sin is bigger. Our sin is bigger before the Lord. It's greatest. So when we talk to others about their sin, we do it with a deep sense that no matter how big their sin may be, our sin before the Lord is so much greater. We go with humility. But we also take sin seriously. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus is teaching about the incredible danger of sin. So much so that it actually can feel like an overstatement. Sin is so dangerous that Jesus teaches it's better to have your hands cut off than to commit sin. Or to have your eyes gouged out than commit sin. Church, we should understand this. Sin is dangerous. People go to hell because of sin. Sin is dangerous. So when we ignore the sins of others, what are we doing? We're leaving them in danger. We may be failing to love them by not recognizing the sin, that the, the danger that they're in because of their sin. So we take sin seriously. We don't just leave people to be hurt. The third thing we do is to love the lost and the wayward. Verses 10 through 14 of Matthew 18 are the parable of the lost, it's the parable of the lost sheep, explaining all the joy that comes when one who wanders is restored. The good shepherd pursues 
and chases down. And this highlights that when we love people, what do we do? We pursue them. We pursue them. If you really love someone, you're concerned about their spiritual condition. And one of the most loving things you can do is to have an awkward conversation with them about their sin. True love is not afraid of a little awkwardness, right? True love compels us towards people even when there are difficulties. So we love the lost and the wayward. In verses 15 through 20, we get really practical steps for how we are to pursue the lost and the wayward. We begin pursuing a sinner as privately as possible. This is especially true, uh, particularly true, if a person is a church member. And then as we warn them in private, we gradually make it more public if they're a believer, simply to help people see how dangerous sin is. Pleading with them to see the danger of their sin. But then the final thing we do is we richly forgive. We richly forgive the sinner. Verses 21 through 35, I've preached on this in the past. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's a sobering parable of of a, of a servant that highlights how central forgiveness is in the life of a believer. The parable tells the story of a man who was forgiven a massive financial debt by a king. But then once that servant is forgiven, he goes off and he quickly forgets all the forgiveness he's received and actually refuses to forgive a small debt that someone else owes him. All right, you see how parallel this is with our relationships? When the gracious and forgiving king hears about how the servant has acted and how unwilling he is to forgive, the king is angry. And the parable begins down, at, or it ends in verse 34 with this very chilling statement. Look down at the text. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, church, whenever we talk with other people about their sin, we are going, our goal is not to exact revenge or to bring shame on them. Our goal is to offer forgiveness. Our goal is reconciliation. That at the very first opportunity, as much as it depends on us, we'll be reconciled to them no matter the sin. We go with forgiveness ready. We'll come back to this in a moment. But recognize that one option, biblically, to respond to other people's sin is to talk to them about it and to do so in love. But there's another option, and that is to overlook it. There are a number of places in the Bible where the Bible praises the kind of wisdom that comes for those who graciously and wisely overlook a sin. We can see this in Proverbs. It's all over the wisdom literature, but here's my favorite. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Some of you have a lot of opportunity for glory because there are a lot of people sinning against you in all sorts of ways, and we have the opportunity to overlook it in love. Another text is in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 in the New Testament where the apostle says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. 
If someone sins against you or if you're aware of another sin in someone's life, that does not necessarily mean that you must address it. Think about it like this. If my sweet wife were to bring to me every single one of my failures that she saw in my life, what would that do to me? I mean, I couldn't handle it. That would just, you, y'all have already seen my problem. I've already put my cross chart up here for you. You've seen how much sin I need, or how much grace I needed this week. If she was to come and to dump all that on me at once, that would crush me. Instead, or think about it like this. What if all of a sudden the Holy Spirit was to help you see in a moment all of the sin in your life? What if he convicted you of the full weight of your sin? It would crush you. Instead, God graciously, in love and in forbearance, reveals our sin to us as we grow in accordance with his wisdom. So we should do the same thing in our relationships. But the question is now this. How do we know when to overlook and when to confront? How do we know? Right? You've just said to overlook sometimes and confront other times. How do we know when to do what? Well, this is a wisdom issue that involves prayer and humility, often involves counsel from a trusted friend or or mentor. And it can be tricky, especially with the people who are the closest in your life. How do we know if we should confront or overlook? Well, here are a couple of questions that I would suggest to you. There's it's more, but let me just suggest a couple of questions to you as you think about this issue. First question would be this. What would love compel you to do? What would love have you to do? Love should always, 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 always drive the decisions that we're making in our relationships, right? That's what Christ did. He was considering others better than himself. And so you can ask, in this situation, what is a loving thing for this person? To speak or to wait and to overlook? This question has a way of cutting through our selfish desires, which are so tempting and common in this type of situation. It's not an excuse to avoid conflict, but instead it tests and clarifies our motives. This will slow you down from unleashing on your husband about how much he fails and unleashing on your children for how much they disappoint you, right? What would love have you do at this time? Sometimes love speaks, and sometimes love remains silent. It is not loving or practical to address every single failure that you see in the lives of your spouse or your children or your coworkers. Nor is it loving to address very sensitive issues in the lives of people that you don't have a relationship with. But love calls us to ask, what is best for this person? How do we draw near to them? What would love have me do? Another question is about timing. Is this the best time? So often the matter of confronting is just a question of timing. We recognize that God is working in their life if they're a believer, and so we're going to trust Him. But usually confrontation is not a question of if, but when. So love will encourage us to carefully consider our timing. For example, if it is 1130 at night, and your husband is 95% asleep, that is probably not a good time to address a concern that you have with him about your marriage. Or if your toddler has just thrown, just thrown a cup of milk 
in your wife's face, that is not a good time to address her tone in responding to said milk dripping down her face. Do you see what I mean? Love would have you wait. It would have you wait. Jesus does this with us, doesn't he? This is how he responded to his disciples in, in the book of John when he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Love often waits to speak. But on the flip side of that is another question. How urgent is the matter? How destructive is their behavior? Now I recognize that all sin on some level is destructive. All of it, big and little. Don't ever be tricked into thinking that your sin will not cause problems in your life and will not cause problems in the lives of the people who try to love you. All of our sin causes problems all the time. So all sin is destructive. But we understand that some sin has more destructive capability immediately than others. Some, some sin has a greater fallout, right? If you see someone raising their hand to strike their children, you do not pause and think, ah, I wonder if she had enough sleep last night. Maybe I'll wait, right? No, love demands that you intervene because of how destructive that sin is. When you discover that someone in your class is maybe ducking out and you learn that perhaps they are having an inappropriate relationship, you do not have to wait to get to know them better, right? You can address that sin because of the danger. So when it comes to problems in your relationship, especially the small stuff, right? Think about how intimate some of your closest relationships are. The question is this, how much is this affecting our relationship? If you are really struggling with bitterness that your husband does not pick up the towel after the shower, that may be a time to say, you know what? I've overlooked this for a long time, but now I'm going to confront. Some of you are like, I've confronted that one 10,000 times. There's still no progress, right? I know, I know. Uh, bear, bear with us, right? How much is this affecting your relationship? Sometimes things that seem really minor can actually end up having a very large impact on your relationship. And so it can be destructive and create a, a divide between you. So after you've tried to overlook, you realize that it's driving a wedge and you need to address it. It's probably a sign that you need to confront that person about her sin. So it's a wisdom issue of whether you should confront or overlook sin. But I want you to notice this, that these are the only two options. There's no option for bitterness. There's no option for leaving the Sunday school class and not talking to them. There's no option for talking bad about them to other people or talking badly about them nicely to other people, right? Those are not options. We either confront or we graciously overlook. But notice this, both scenarios conclude with forgiveness, with forgiveness. And that really leaves us with a question. What happens if they don't respond well? Some of you are married to idiots. I know. Some of you, <laughs> some of you have to interact with very difficult people. I know. What do we do when these people don't respond well? How do I overlook the sin of a person who continually sins against me? Some of you have been married to an angry man for 30 years. How do you continually love him and overlook his habitual sin. Well, the gospel helps us here. I want to close with this concept. No matter what, we forgive. Let's look at how this works out. 
In Mark chapter 10, Jesus gives us these two kind of ideas that seem to conflict with each other. Think about it like this. Jesus says in Mark 11, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your sins. Right? Sounds very similar to Matthew 18. But then compare that to this verse. Luke 17, Jesus says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, if you were to read these two verses carefully and closely, you may, you may notice that it seems like they're contradicting each other. Mark chapter 11 seems to say that if you're worshiping and suddenly you remember how someone has sinned against you, that you should just immediately forgive. There's no interaction with that other person at all. You should just immediately forgive the one who sinned against you. But then in Luke 17, it seems different. If your brother sins, you should go rebuke him, right? So, and then forgive him only if he repents. So which is it? I think it's helpful to think of this in terms of horizontal and vertical forgiveness. Horizontal and vertical forgiveness. Let's think about vertical forgiveness first. In Mark chapter 11, I think that represents the vertical aspect of forgiveness, the, the attitude in our hearts towards God. When someone sins against me, the way that I respond has a lot to do with God. What's going on in my heart affects my worship, right? Broken relationships hinder worship. That's what's going on, that vertical aspect. And so regardless of how that other person responds, whether it's in the initial sin or in the attempt for reconciliation, God is calling us to focus on our own hearts and to be sure that we have an attitude of forgiveness first. I like to think of this in terms of my forgiveness is always on the table. No matter what the situation is, I want to sort it out with the Lord so that I am always ready in a moment to forgive this person. There's not going to be a time when I take back the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. So if that person repents in a week, or a month, or a year, or three decades, or never, I will be ready and willing to be reconciled, right? That's vertical forgiveness because I've sorted it out with the Lord. But then there's also this horizontal forgiveness, right? Where Jesus is saying, go sort it out with your brother. It's, it's a picture of a forgiveness transaction. This is one where you have uh, confronted or perhaps the person has confessed and repented, and then you've forgiven, and you have been reconciled back together. This is only possible when the offender repents and is seeking reconciliation. Church, I know that our relationships are difficult, but the Bible gives us two options, to speak and confront or to graciously overlook, and no matter what happens, to forgive. So my prayer for us, that no matter how we respond to this, that we would be displaying Christ's love as we forgive others. Do you see how this works? When they sin, no matter what, we forgive. We're called in our hearts to forgive and then never take that offer of forgiveness off the table because God doesn't do that to us. This reminds us that forgiveness is not just a one-time event, but it's something that requires maintenance and renewal. So as we close, let's Ask the Lord to help us to imitate Jesus as he has forgiven others.
you join me in prayer?